it's interesting looking back six years, we started with, you know, how do you put the best menu together to make your cinema more attractive? Or what technology do you need to take a cinema and turn it into a dining cinema? Do you need a fancier point of sale? What tools do you need? Now we're talking about how do you make the best use of your square footage? Because there's a real appetite for it. And I think a real understanding in the industry more than ever that you have to be looking that way. If you're not looking that way, you're probably not looking in the right direction. This is the Box Office Podcast. I'm Daniel Luria, the editorial director of Box Office Pro, the pulse of theatrical exhibition. Here this week with our colleague and co-host, Rebecca Pauly, deputy editor at Box Office Pro. And together this week, we're going to be going over the Oscar nominations for this year's Academy Awards. Coming up in a couple of weeks now, the award show, Rebecca and I will be going over all of the finalists for the honors at the biggest party that Hollywood throws. And following that, we've got an interview with Matt and Amy Motter, the organizers of the Dine-In Cinema Summit happening in early February over in Austin, Texas. That's coming up in our feature segment. But let's dive right into it. Rebecca, it's been a couple slow weekends at the box office. Not much to talk about what came out or what's coming up. We really don't have anything to talk about until Valentine's Day here in terms of new releases. Yeah, Daniel, I think everyone in this industry knows that this time of year tends to be pretty pretty slow. Everyone's uh, thawing out. I didn't make it out to the movies this weekend because it was just too darn cold to go outside and go anywhere. But I am seeing a, seeing a rep screening tonight of a 70s horror movie I really like called uh, Messiah of Evil at the Alamo Draft House in Brooklyn. So pumped for that. Messiah of Evil. Sounds it's wonderful. Good. good stuff. There's actually a really good scene in a set in a movie theater. Oh, nice. Yeah, that sounds like a, like a fun late January at the movies and talking about award season and everything in between we do have to mention this week's podcast sponsor spotlight cinema networks because our feature interview this week is part of our indie influencers series talking about some of the most compelling and biggest personalities working in this industry rebecca we've got a message from our sponsor spotlight cinema networks Yeah, Daniel, this episode of the Box Office Podcast is brought to you by Spotlight Cinema Networks, the only cinema advertising company dedicated to serving the needs of art house, luxury, and dine-in exhibitors for cinema advertising, pre-show entertainment, event cinema, and digital display distribution. Spotlight offers unique revenue-generating advertisement programs tailored to an upscale and influential cinema audience. In collaboration with Box Office Pro, Spotlight Cinema Networks is proud to present Indie Influencers, a series profiling the industry thought leaders, iconic art houses, and executives from the country's leading luxury cinema circuits. To find out more about Spotlight Cinema Networks, visit SpotlightCinemaNetworks.com. Thank you so much, Rebecca, and thank you to our partners over at Spotlight Cinema Networks. Let's jump in now with the news. Before we get into Oscar nominations, we had a national popcorn day last Friday. What was going on? Who participated? What do we have here from that? Every day is National Popcorn Day in the Polly household. But for everyone else, yeah, uh, National Popcorn Day, uh, January 19th, pretty much every theater chain and independent cinema, smaller regional chains participated in this, giving a discounted, in some cases, free popcorn to people visiting. It's a really good, uh, really good initiative placed, I think, really well 
Because as you mentioned a few minutes ago, Daniel, really not a lot coming out this time of year at the movies. You want to draw people in, maybe people who are on the fence about revisiting something that they saw that they liked before, catching up on some things that they wanted to see, but due to holiday craziness, never got around to. Yeah, it's a really well-timed initiative. Yeah, but I'm going to be honest with you, Rebecca. I think the industry is going to have to offer me more than free popcorn to go to the movies when there's so little to pick from. Yeah, well, that, that's that, that's not on the cinemas, though. Exactly. No, <laughs> listen, the, the, theaters are doing, the theaters are doing everything they can with what they have, and this is actually one of the cool industry initiatives, as you mentioned, that, that they can turn to, that they can coordinate on and make things happen. And let's move on to the Oscar nominations here, Rebecca, which came out earlier this week. Among those nominated is a familiar name here to exhibition, the Salt Lake Film Society's own Tori Baker. She's been there for a while, obviously a very influential figure during the early years of Art House Convergence now very involved with NATO these days. She was nominated for 95... What was she nominated for? Yeah, Tori A. Baker, as you mentioned, of the Salt Lake Film Society, also vice chair of the Cinema Foundation. Through the Salt Lake Film Society, she co-founded this kind of media accelerator program designed to provide opportunities for young animators, aspiring you know, people who want to get into the film industry. In the past, uh, these people typically needed to, or decided to rather, leave the state of Utah to find those career opportunities. This media accelerator is meant to combat that. The first animated short from that group called 95 Senses, produced by Baker, has made it through the shortlist phase and is officially nominated in the best animated short film category. So uh, a huge congratulations. And you can check out an interview with her about that film and about the process and about the importance of theatricals specifically for short films in our February-March issue, which you'll be able to pick up at the Dine-In Cinema Summit in Texas. Yeah, that's a great feature story we have there that was provided to us by our friends over at the National Association of Theater Owners uh, in our February-March print edition. Let's go over some of the other categories here at the Academy Awards, starting with Best Picture, Rebecca. We've got a long list of, I think, pretty good titles. Nothing here that I find out of place. Maybe one title from Netflix here. Let's get into it. We've got American Fiction uh, movie coming up from MGM Amazon. We've got Anatomy of a Fall, the French language film that was put out here in the United States by Neon. Barbie from Warner Brothers. Then we've got Focus Features coming in with The Holdovers. Then Apple and a movie that they released in partnership with Paramount Pictures, Killers of the Flower Moon. Netflix coming in with one title in the Best Picture race being Maestro. Then we've got Oppenheimer, the universal film that was the second half of that Barbenheimer double feature this summer. Past Lives from A24, Poor Things from Searchlight Pictures and another A24 title, the foreign language picture, The Zone of Interest. All of these movies coming into the best picture race. Nine of the 10, I think, were among the top 25 movies of the year on my list. Maestro was nothing short of awful, based on what I saw. I mean, if we talk about vanity projects, this was a terrible vanity project. I guess Netflix has to show up there in some capacity. But for that one, my God, did you see Bradley Cooper's? It wasn't the nose, by the way. It was the entire face. 
I mean, there was so much latex on that thing. It started melting off under the lights. I did not catch that film. I, I never really felt particularly compelled to, but I am just scrolling down. Yeah, it did get nominated in the uh, in the best makeup and hairstyling category. How? So How? there you go. I mean, is there, there a quota they have to hit? Because like <laughs> Netflix is the only place that's still putting money into like throwing cocktail parties. That has to be it. I mean, this movie was absurdly bad. We won't get too much into it. Let's focus on the good movies that are here because there's focus enough on, on the good, movies yeah. that deserve our commendation, our praise, rather than focusing on what was clearly one of the most laughably bad pictures that Netflix has put out in its uh, questionable release history over the years. Let's look at this just best picture race. First thing that I'm noticing, two foreign language titles in there, both of them extremely good movies. Anatomy of a Fall, as I mentioned, a French language film coming out from Neon. That won the Palme d'Or at the Cannes Film Festival last year. Zone of Interest, which I think was in on my list, the best movie of last year, coming in from A24. That's Jonathan Glazer's Holocaust era drama. It's, it's a difficult picture in the sense that all Holocaust films are difficult, difficult pictures to, to watch. But this one, I think, was coming at the topic from a very unique angle. Harrowing, harrowing movie. I absolutely loved Zone of Interest. It's great to see both halves of Barbenheimer in there. I'm really happy to see a title like The Holdovers, a movie that I was not looking forward to watching, that I really wasn't drawn into but that I absolutely loved. It's one of my favorite holiday era films after having seen it. It's a good little list here, including a first-time filmmaker with uh, past lives. This is this is a nice selection. And it's interesting to me looking at this, uh, it's, it's the maximum amount of nominees they can have at 10. It really doesn't appear there's a stone cold front runner going into this race. Everything seems kind of up in the air at this point. So definitely looking forward to seeing how this award season shakes out. Uh, and I'm thinking about starting some kind of box office company-wide betting pool about how many times the word Barbenheimer is spoken, how many how many references or jokes there are to that. I guess I'm close to, if not over, double digits, but yeah. Yeah, yeah that's, uh, that's something to look forward to. And I, I made a mistake a second ago when I said one film in the Best Picture Race from a first-time filmmaker, Celine Song's Past Lives. It's actually two. Uh, American Fiction from Court Jefferson, another first-time filmmaker coming out of the gate with a Best Picture nomination. I love to see these stories coming in and uh, making an impact, at least in the Academy Awards, to help boost the visibility of these titles. As we know, it's always tough to market a first-time film from a filmmaker, especially if you don't have a big IP backing behind it. Hopefully we see a nice little boost in the market for all these titles. Yeah, definitely. If I mean, if you look at something like uh, American Fiction, which I believe right now is in theaters and in limited release, you know, the, the bigger films like Barbie or Oppenheimer, they don't necessarily need the, the marketing push that the Oscar nominations provide, especially, you know, they're already out of cinemas. But something like American Fiction, which started its international rollout December 15th, which is still in theaters. Yeah, this is it's always a really good time to see those smaller films that make it into the, I mean, nothing for me, I, I don't know, going into seeing Poor Things, I will, you know, Oppenheimer all the way, but after having seen Poor Things, I just love that movie so much. So. Oh, yeah, I adore <laughs> that movie. And we have to say, it's not an easy movie to put out there. I mean, it's not an accessible film. It's explicit, both in a sexual and, and graphic uh, medical gore And yet still level. so fun, strangely. And it's <laughs> extremely fun, yeah. I had a great time watching it. I mean, it's gratuitous in a, in a self-referential way, 
and not in a way that I think drags the film down. I'm surprised to see it on this list, not because it doesn't deserve to be on there. I can't remember the last time a movie with this much sex and violence made it into a best picture race. I think it's a long shot, but it's good oh, to yeah. have it in there. In, in terms of like frontrunners, you're right. There's not a clear one. I'd be surprised if it's not between Oppenheimer or Killers of the Flower Moon, just because of the way that voting system yeah. is set up. Emma Stone getting a nomination for Poor Things in the Best Actress category alongside Lily Gladstone in Killers of the Flower Moon, Sandra Hewler in Anatomy of a Fall, Carrie Mulligan in Your Beloved Maestro, and Annette Bedding in Naya. Yeah, on the Best Actress race, you know how I feel about Emma Stone's performance in Poor Things. The second I saw that film, I thought it was her award to lose. Carrie Mulligan's the best part of Maestro, period. The best, I mean, the music's damn good. I guess it's the second best part after the music. So I can understand that being part of the conversation there. On the flip side in that category, the best actor in a leading role, we've got Bradley Cooper in Pounds of Makeup for Maestro, Coleman Domingo in Rustin, another Netflix title, Paul Giamatti in The Holdovers, uh, Chilean, how do I say this name? I, I believe it's Killian. All right, it's Killian Murphy. That's what we're going to go with. Killian Murphy in uh, Oppenheimer and Jeffrey Wright in American Fiction. In this one, I got to tell you, I didn't enjoy Rustin, the film itself, but I really liked Coleman Domingo's performance in that film. It was fantastic. It was uh, over the holidays Netflix watch that I, I put on, you know, I showed my mother that one on your recommendation that the movie, not that great, but it, it, had, a, it had a good performance. Yeah, it's your typical substitute teacher day movie at school. Remember when the substitute teacher came in and they just mm -hmm. got whatever with like cursory educational value they could find in the VHS room, they'd wheel out the TV in the little cart in the middle of the classroom, they'd pop in, whatever they could find. This is, Rustin is a type of movie you would watch on Substitute Teacher Day. An extremely forgettable movie, but with a great performance elevating the film into another level. Let's look at the best directing category here. Uh, the big snub, I think, of these nominations, we'd both agree, is Greta Gerwig not being in the list for best director for her work in Barbie. I don't know how that happens because Barbie isn't part of any conversation in the world of cinema without Greta Gerwig's involvement at the director's chair. Instead, we've got, uh, I think, five solid candidates here. It's hard to say who you leave out to bring in Greta Gerwig in, but we've got uh, Justine Triet for Anatomy of a Fall, the French courtroom drama, Martin Scorsese for Killers of the Flower Moon, Christopher Nolan, another big, big name for Oppenheimer, Yorgos Lantimos with the visionary film Poor Things, and Jonathan Glazer with another visionary film, but in a very understated way for his work in The Zone of Interest. Is this Nolan's to lose? Maybe Scorsese gets this? I don't know. Again, I think it's a... Killers versus Oppenheimer, look, just looking at the way that the Academy has voted in the past. Yeah, absolutely. And, and actually looking at, uh, at past, something about the, the Greta Gerwig snub kind of pinged in my brain. And I remember it was also uh, slightly controversial or, or considered a snub when she did not uh, get nominated for directing Little Women either. So... Uh, yeah, we'll see. She did get nominated for Lady Bird for directing and screenplay and actually also got nominated this year for adapted screenplay for Barbie. We were talking about this before recording, Daniel. What is Barbie adapted from? <laughs> Plastic doll in a box, in a cardboard box. I don't know how that qualifies. I guess it's it's a pre-existing property, but it's a it's a doll. No, I mean, that that 
fine. Listen, it's a fantastic screenplay. In my opinion, the best adapted, the best screenplay period of the entire year really, really makes the sort of movie that makes a difficult writing assignment into a great visionary piece. It starts with a script, Greta Gerwig's work with her partner, Noah Baumbach, for Barbie. So yes, she did get that adapted screenplay nomination alongside Cord Jefferson with American Fiction. He also directed that film. We've got Tony McNamara being nominated for his script on Poor Things. Chris Nolan with his screenplay for Oppenheimer and Jonathan Glazer with The Zone of Interest. That is the Best Writing Adapted Screenplay category. In the original screenplay category, we've got Anatomy of a Fall, The Holdovers, Maestro, May, December, and Past Lives. I have to tell you, Rebecca, I was surprised that May, December didn't make it into more top-line categories. I absolutely love that film. For me, that was the best Netflix movie of this year by some distance. And speaking of the best uh, screenplay, best adapted screenplay category and, and Barbie, I mean, you have to look at that monologue scene that uh, America Ferrara's character had in that film. I mean, that got her in. And I was surprised to see her in the uh, in the best uh, supporting actress category. Always a, the supporting actor, actress category is always very tough, very crowded. She did get in there, on, I think, on the power of, of that monologue, which was so strong and resonated with so many people. She is in that category alongside Emily Blunt in Oppenheimer, Danielle Brooks in The Color Purple, which I believe it's that, that film's only nomination. Let me let me check here, but yep. And then, yeah, America Ferrera for Barbie, Joey D. Foster for Nyad, and Divine Joy Randolph of The Holdovers. And I have to single out Divine Joy Randolph's performance in The Holdovers. It is fantastic. It's incredible. It's a movie, again, as I said at the beginning of this episode, I did not really come into wanting to watch. I took it really as a homework assignment and I came out loving her performance is fantastic. I think just as good as Paul Giamatti's lead performance in that film. On the best actor in a supporting role category, we've got Sterling K. Brown for American Fiction, Robert De Niro for Killers of the Flower Moon, Robert Downey Jr. for Oppenheimer, Ryan Gosling for Barbie, and Mark Ruffalo for Poor Things. Really good combo of character roles here. Robert De Niro's, I think, best villain turn since the Cape Fear remake he made with Scorsese. It's hard to look at that performance and wonder who could beat that. But then you look at Robert Downey Jr. and Oppenheimer. I mean, it's a stacked category. I definitely want to see Ryan Gosling's Ken and Mark Ruffalo's F-boy character and poor things have like a... I just want those characters <laughs> to have a road trip comedy together because they, they yes, work so... They're such good idea. comedic performances. That's a great... Of like horrible men. Horrible yeah, kind of airheaded dudes. <laughs> Yeah, the bad boyfriend supporting actor roles here. But they did fantastically well. I think Mark Ruffalo was fantastic in that performance. And Ryan Gosling really brought a charisma to the Ken character that made a one-dimensional character even more one-dimensional in a way that we can all enjoy. That's the best actor in a supporting role category. Let's move on here to best animated feature, Rebecca. We've got five films, uh, The Boy and the Heron, the Miyazaki film, Elemental, the Disney Pixar movie, Nimona, a movie that I've never heard of. I think I got swag on it from Netflix. Look, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse is in there. That's the only one I've seen. There's something called Robot Dreams, which I'm not familiar with, but I always like an underdog getting in there. I think that's a neon title. I think that came out like last weekend, honestly. I don't know how that snuck in there. On uh, It's a 2023 film, but sure, why not? Let's do that. That basically gets us over to the documentary category. We've got a difficult year for documentaries. 
not too many interesting things coming in from the streamer front that we usually look at. We didn't have a theatrical documentary hit the way we've had in recent years. We've got Bobby Wine, the People's President, The Eternal Memory. We've got Four Daughters, To Kill a Tiger, and 20 Days in Mario Paul. I'd be lying to you, Rebecca, if I said I'd seen any of them. I, I have seen none I have of them. Not, not I have not one, either. Nothing. Zero. Sorry. Yeah. yeah, I can't even tell you how many of those got a theatrical release. We have, we have no clue what we're talking about. We have catching up to do before, uh, before yeah. the ceremony in March. I tallied. I saw over 200 movies last year. Over 100 of them being theatrical releases. I mean, I don't know who marketed these. I don't know who released these. No clue. I have no idea. Documentary film in, in a weird sort of darkened corner this year, even though that category was getting more theatrical space in recent years, at least on the streaming front, it seemed that these documentaries were, were hitting the culture. This year, weird off year, I have nothing positive or negative to say about any of these titles, just simply for two people that work in this industry, whose job it is to watch and know about movies, we do not know of any of these, nor have we seen a single one of them. Now, Daniel, do you ever uh, get around to seeing Godzilla Minus One? Because that's one that I was very happy to see pop up in the visual effects category, alongside the creator, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning Part 1, and Napoleon. I still think it's bogus that Oppenheimer was not in the visual effects shortlist. I guess it was just too good at looking realistic, <laughs> but really excited to see Godzilla Minus One and the creator, a movie that I really did not like really at all. Um, but that and Godzilla Minus One both pulling out some really, really amazing visual effects on pretty small budgets. So I'm, I'm happy to see Godzilla Minus One represented and quasi happy that the creator got in there. <laughs> Hey, you know, it's important to get those movies on there. And you mentioned the presence of foreign language film getting in there. Of course, we've got a best international category that unfortunately Godzilla minus one was not Japan's entry for best international feature film at this year's Academy Awards. Instead, it was a German film from Vim Vendor's Perfect Days. Okay. Sounds good, Japan. But hey, it was strong enough to get nominated here. We've also got Yo Capitano from Italy, Society of the Snow from Spain, The Teacher's Lawn from Germany, and doing double duty with a best picture and best international picture, The Zone of Interest from the UK's Jonathan Glazer. I think for me here, it's a clear winner, Zone of Interest, by far, by far a standout in this category. The below the line sort of categories, really pleased to see poor things and be getting cinematography. Yeah, I interviewed Robbie Ryan for our magazine, the cinematographer on that movie, a fantastic work that he did. You can find that on our website. And before we move on from that best cinematography category, I do have to bring up uh, Edward Lachman's work in El Conde, Pablo Lorraine's Chilean film where... The Chilean dictator Pinochet is recast as a vampire in modern day Chile. Fantastic movie. Really, really good. I really loved Pablo Lorraine's previous films. I got it. This one, how did this miss me? This has the sort of ferocity and genre appeal that an earlier work of his, Tony Manero, had. If you go back to the last decade, that must have been even like late 2000s even. Absolutely loved Del Conde. That's on Netflix. You should check that out. Wonderful cinematography in that film as well. Yeah, and that does it for our rundown of the major categories at the upcoming Academy Awards. And now to our feature segment brought to you by Spotlight Cinema Networks, my interview with the Dine-In Cinema Summit's organizers, Matt and Amy Matter. That is coming up after the break. 
And we are back here on the Box Office Podcast in this edition, going over the Dining Cinema Summit happening in February in Austin, Texas. We've got Matt and Amy Motter joining us, founders of the event, founders of Venue Valet, which provides call button service for cinemas, an important sector that's just gaining and gaining popularity as dine-ins and cinema entertainment centers continue to expand, not only in the U.S., but all over the world. Matt, Amy, welcome back. Thank you for having us. Yeah, let's talk uh, dine-in. First, let's start with the basics. When is this event taking place? How many days? I mean, this is one of those events just keeps on growing year after year on the convention calendar. It does. It does. We are going to be back in our home, uh, our home stopping grounds of Austin, Texas from February 5th through the 8th. And we are excited to be back to going to the theaters. We're going to be heading to uh, Flick's Brewhouse. We're heading to Alamo Draft House, Evo Entertainment, and Movie House and Eatery by Sinopolis. Uh, in addition to that, we'll have our evening parties tearing up in the downtown city of Austin. It's a lively town. Uh, we're here recording live from Austin, Texas. I love coming down here. I'm in the very nice venue valet offices here. Uh, let's chat a little bit about the event because there's an extra day there at the end of it. Um, tell us a little bit about that. What's in the cards here for Dine-In Cinema Summit 2024? Um, so in the past, we've had our opening event on Monday evening. We've had educational seminars from nine until seven on Tuesday and Wednesday with evening networking parties on Tuesday and Wednesday evening. And then quite frankly, people were hungover on Thursday morning. It'll well, happen in our industry. It will happen. Yeah. Yes. Yes. The alcohol bill is one thing we, you know, we feel like we've gotten a grip on, um, <laughs> but we're shocked in the first couple of years. Uh, but what we're adding to this year due to demand that we had with our guests from last year is we're going to add in an FEC day for a family entertainment center. So we have Turfway Entertainment, who is heading that up with JKRP Architects, and we'll be showcasing vendors there. They're going to be doing little educational seminars on that day. So we're now adding another day um, for everybody to to look at different avenues um, for revenue to add to their existing properties. I love it. That's great. And, you know, this is an event, but this is the sixth edition of the of the Dine-In Summit? We are six. Wow. So tell me a little bit about the evolution. What has been some of the biggest lessons from the last couple of events, including last year's that I attended? I wasn't allowed to say the word pandemic. I'm getting, <laughs> I'm getting a look here from both of them because I said it, uh, which I think was very healthy uh, last year to be, be able to have a convention and a panel without getting stuck in that point, what are those lessons for the last couple of years that you're bringing uh, to this year's event? Good question. Um, <laughs> well, yeah, we, so we put that rule in, or uh, rule, we put that helpful guideline in last year because we felt going into February of 2022 that we all really understood the effects of uh, the P and the C word. Um, and it was time to start to deal with the reality of what the industry was in. Um, and so not that we don't want to talk about what's happened in the past, but we really wanted to focus the attention on what we could do going forward as a group of people that, um, that frankly, uh, survived and, uh, from a vendor perspective and from an exhibitor and family entertainment center type perspective. Um, and so that, I mean, I, I appreciate you bringing that up because it, it'll, it'll be another, uh, soft rule again, again this year. Uh, because it's real easy to to take a look back and and look at 
what was happening in 2019 and leverage, you know, that, that, that data that you had and how you ran your business. But even when we first started this six years ago, we started talking about or tried to talk about um, what else could the cinema space um, add to itself to, to be a more attractive place where families and couples go spend their time. Because that's what dine-in cinema in our world, in our, from our customer's perspective, that's what dine-in cinema was. It took the cinema space and it created another level of experience where you come in and you get pizza and salads and steaks and, and pasta uh, and drinks, alcohol, right? And um, our first year, we even, we had a, a session on adding things like bowling and adding things like arcade. Um, and it, to be honest, it really didn't go over very well um, because a lot of the people that attended were making a lot of money um, selling burgers and pasta and and um, fancy drinks. And, and uh, they were like, why do we want to change something that is going so well? Mm-hmm. It's already hard enough to run a dine-in theater. Um, now you want us to add maybe bowling and laser tag and all this other stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the here, fast forward six years, now we're talking about, um, a, and last year was a, the first time where we really, we brought in Turfway Entertainment, Dave Wallace and his, his glorious cast of, of characters and vendors. And he, we got great response out of it. It was like the, everybody was anxious and, and really encouraged walking out of the content that, that his group provided. So like Amy said, we're, we're expanding on that because, um, I think that's the, and we have tons of customers that are going through this right now. And that is, um, how do, how do we remodel this square footage? Do we need 10 screens? Can we get away with eight screens? Can we convert stuff? Right. There's, there's tons of that conversation happening with our customers as well as theaters that are vacant out there or landlords are renegotiating leases mm-hmm. and they want something other than a movie, just a dedicated movie theater, even dine-in summit, dine-in cinema to go into it. They want someone that's going to be the next generation. Um, and so that's, that's, it's interesting looking back six years, we started with, you know, how do you put the best menu together to make your cinema more attractive? Or what technology do you need to take a cinema and turn into a dine-in cinema? Do you need a fancier point of sale? What, what tools do you need? Now we're talking about how do you make the best use of your square footage? Uh, because there's a real appetite for it. And I think a real understanding in the industry more than ever that um, you have to be looking that way. If you're not looking that way, um, you're probably not looking in the right direction. What I love about your event is that it is uh, an off-the-record event. You go and there's a lot of things that are shared that are meant for other exhibitors to learn and apply those lessons. And, and that's what I like. There's not a lot of posturing. There's not a lot of sound bites. Uh, it's really there to help the exhibition community install better practices in running this, uh, this dine-in and, and cinema entertainment space. You guys are also in contact with a lot of these uh, proprietors, a lot of these uh, operators um, through your regular work, through Venue Valet. You know what the priorities are, you know what the pain points are, what the opportunities and missed opportunities are. Let's talk about the pain points real quick because I know what the opportunities are in going at the dine-in. I think everyone listening to this podcast knows the promise of dine-in. It's a story that we've told for many years. 
When I was at the event last year, I heard a lot of concern over the limitations of point of sale software. That seems to be a chorus of people saying, hey, POS providers aren't doing enough for this growing segment of the industry. Is that still a concern? Are there other concerns that are also part of that mix? Oh, it's still a concern. Um, it's a hard problem. I think everybody agrees, especially the point of sale providers, um, that it, it's not an easy problem to solve. Uh, providing a an all-in-one type point of sale that that targets this space, or even adding on to it, right? The the FEC or CEC space, it even gets more challenging. Um, so that 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 it for sure hasn't hasn't gone away. Um, and one of the I think one of the main reasons is uh, continued operational challenges um, to where it's hard to get good um, servers, employees to come and do the same work that was easy to find employees for back in 2019. Um, it, it's it's hard to, to staff appropriately when you have a you know a single room in an eight-seater, eight-auditorium building that has 150 seats in it, and then you got two others that are 300, 100 seats, you got, you know, you, you're going to be sitting hundreds of people at the same time. Um, the exhibitors, operators are really still looking for the right combination of how do we continue to provide good service with also giving customers the flexibility to do things on their own phone, um, at a kiosk, those kinds of things. And it really does, it really does have a, significant impact on um, on the on the consumer first of all um, but also on uh, the history of like how an exhibitor has was operating in 2019 they have that reputation to uphold right and so there, there's a balance and and that makes the point of sale even more challenging is because you want a point of sale that allows a customer to do what they want to do on their phone maybe from a kiosk but then also have a handheld that an employee can walk up into an auditorium or a table and take an order. You want it to all be one big system. Um, and of course, every, you know, this is, it's been the way since we got into this business 11 years ago is that every dine and cinema um, has their own little tweaks on how they want to operate and create that perfect experience. And the point of sale is a part of that. And having a, and being a point of sale provider is a challenge, is, is very challenging in that you have, if you have a hundred customers, hundred chains out there that are your customers, Every one of them is a little different. It's very difficult to keep that market happy and moving forward effectively, especially when you still have to support them, you know, almost 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. That's a big tech challenge coming up, yes. I think, here in the sector. Uh, another challenge that is sneaking up uh, to us, and I, I'm curious to hear your opinion, speaking to some of your customers and colleagues in this space, uh, is the cost of the consumer. Uh, we know that food costs are going up. Uh, it's hard to predict in some cases, just how much. And a lot of those costs are being passed on to the consumers at the grocery store, at restaurants. There's a price sensitivity right now in the United States that wasn't there three, four, five years ago when dine-in really started to explode. How has the dine-in community responded to this economic trend? Is, is there a concern that people are going to be spending a little bit less in their dine-in experience? Um, it's a good question. I don't know that we are, I don't know that Amy and I are the perfect per people to answer that question. I will tell you that um, I do know, I'm aware from certain customers that I've, I've talked to, um, you know, they, they do continue to have, do price adjustments more than they've ever done. Mm -hmm. um, and, but I also know that they're, 
probably more focused on continuing to create a better experience because the better experience justifies the price in most people's eyes. You don't go to, um, you know, the best steakhouse in town expecting a deal on your steak. You walk in the door and there's a certain price tag that comes with it because it's got a certain reputation. If you operate your dine-in cinema or your, your, your entertainment center the same way, and you provide very, very good quality food, uh, and everybody knows the price of employees is, is going up, um, and justifiably so on many fronts, um, people are willing to pay the price as long as the experience is at the right level that people expect. Um, and there's always going to be people that, you know, for $20, $20 hamburger, or cheeseburger, they expect this kind of quality, this kind of experience. And that's where the dine-in cinemas, I think, can differentiate each other. It's like there, there are certain customers of ours and, and cinemas out there that have different quality food than the one that's across town. And so if you want to go see that movie or see that show and want a cheeseburger and you put you only want to spend $50 on the whole package versus I'm um, willing to spend up to a hundred, you it, it dictates where it dictates where you go. Like going to the best steakhouse in town and the not so great steakhouse in town. You could still have a good experience. But um I I, I think it's gonna to continue to evolve within that spirit, which is I'm not competing with the restaurant two blocks down because I'm creating a better experience. I got you're coming here for a dinner and a movie or, you know, some sort of entertainment, or you may be spending the whole afternoon here when you're going to go bowling, play video games, and then see. So there's a, there's a convenience price almost for that, right? And we have staff that's going to take care of you, and you're going to walk out and go, we'll be back in two weeks when the next movie comes out. Um, so I, I don't, it's definitely an issue, but I don't hear anybody going, our customers are getting so irritated. All they're doing is telling us we're charging too much. We have to adjust our prices, and we got to figure out how to get less expensive food product into our kitchen so we can we can lower our food our food costs. So so I feel kind of, you know, piggybacking on what you're saying is if you are going there and if you've been to your neighborhood movie theater and the chicken tenders and french fries went from 7.95 to 15.95 but nothing changed and perhaps that you know, you're not cleaning your theater like you should or you're not keeping that maintenance to go with that experience, then people get irritated. But if you sit down and, and have a creative menu so that what you can, you know, embed those costs in where people don't necessarily see it, but then they're like, oh, there's something new on the menu. Like I'm not getting stale. So if you keep evolving and when something is new and exciting, I know when we go to our theater, the one that we go to, it's like, oh God, that's something new. I'll try it. If you keep that going and keep people's interest peaked, then they don't get bored. If they get bored, then they start looking at the prices and then their bill is like, my gosh, I used to come here and it was $50 and now now it's 100 Instead, it's like, oh gosh, I tried this new drink or I tried this new entree. And you know, and you can still have obviously the basic staples there, but if you do a little spin on other things, it makes it more appealing to come. And it's like Disney. I mean, you go to Disney and those rides are constantly changing. It's the same ride. They're just rebranding it or they're, you know, it's a small world, which is the best ride ever. You know, my kids hate it. But anyway, I think it's the best ride ever. But now they've added it, incorporated all the Disney characters into that ride instead of just having what the basic was. And now, you know, so you just have to, you know, that come, that statement we heard from, you know, a, a friend of ours that was like, diversify or die, you know, mm -hmm. keep on doing stuff. And that's, that's why I think people don't necessarily harp on the price too much if they feel like what they're paying for, they're getting that experience. 
think we're seeing that in, in cinemas in general with the reseeding revolution, right? Or the laser projection revolution. Mm-hmm. That yes, the ticket price is rising incrementally, but you're getting much better sight and sound. Mm-hmm. You're getting much more comfortable seating. It has to keep up. You can't just, like you say, Amy, raise the prices, but not the standards. Yeah. They have to go up together. And talking about that, let's talk about uh, the standards over at the Diamond Cinema Summit. <laughs> what are you guys are going to be talking about? The topics at this event. What are some of the panels that you guys are most excited about? Um, I'm most I'm excited about kind of a couple different things we have coming in. Um, one thing that we're adding, we're calling it Party with Whomever, um, where we're bringing in exhibitors to talk about just it's a one on one, almost like a fireside chat that we're having. Um, where they're going to talk about their experience and they're going to you know, really put out different things that they've been doing. That's one thing I'm excited about. Um, I'm excited about we're going to deep dive into the Taylor Swift experience um, slash effect that has happened. Um, we have a topic that is going to be, um, what I say, we're going to dive deep into kitchen space and, and, and the best use of kitchen space. So I'm excited about that. Um what are, you want me to go? I'll say, what are you excited about? Those are my t- kind of my top uh, three uh, things I want to want to think yeah, up. We right now on the schedule we have two sort of uh, very um, not scoped or not completely scoped topics. In that uh, one of them is on the technology side, so we're trying to put together, and we are putting together a uh, a good discussion with a bunch of technology representatives from um, the exhibition side. Um, and when I say that, I'm talking about a wide range of, of folks that represent a single one location um, exhibitor all the way to the big guys in the industry uh, and everything in between um, to talk about technology and what their priorities are, um, what their priorities, what they thought were going to be in 2023 and, and turned out weren't or what they changed. Things like point of sale and laser projection, perhaps. Um, security, um, payments. Um, and then we're doing the same thing with uh, like the chief operating officer, head of food and beverage kind of um, set of folks. Uh, again, wide range where we have, you know, one of the big guys will be on the panel or a part of the discussion all the way down to very small exhibitors um, talking about operations and hiring people and um, changes they're trying to make and how challenging it is when you have 10 locations to keep your menu and your food consistency and your culture um, moving in one direction. Um, again, something we tried to do in the past, but I think we we struggled to get the right representation in on the discussion. Um, now more than ever, we're trying to make sure that people that attend this event um, walk away, maybe not with all the answers to the, the problems or the questions or the challenges they have in front of them, but um, maybe they learn more about how to think about certain things differently uh, so that they can go back uh, into their, you know, their, their real world after they leave Austin and, uh, and try to figure out how a lot of the material they, they learned at our summit uh, can apply to their business. And more importantly, to know that they're not on their own. Um, and that's really why we started this six years ago um, we want everybody, small, medium, large, to be able to come to this event as as an exhibitor and as a vendor, um, as a sponsor, and really appreciate um, what's going on across the country. And we have some international folks coming as well. Um, and uh, and one thing Amy and I always get asked to do after the event's over is 
is, hey, can you, you know, we'll get emails or calls from, from people and say, hey, can you introduce me to that one guy that spoke at that one event or that one panel or whatever, because I'd really like to talk to him. Uh, and that we always tell people that part of our introductory speech at the beginning of the event is always, um, you know, feel free to say whatever you want in this environment. Um, it's what made, it's what's made our event great. Um, it, but if you and ask questions, right? Uh, because you're probably not, if you're sitting in here with a couple hundred other people and you're asking, you're thinking of something, you guarantee you you're not by yourself. Um, and feel free to ask it. But if you don't want to ask it, you can just pull one of us aside and we'll ask it for you uh, to the group. Um, and, and we'll also introduce you to whoever you think might be um, a good fit to help your business uh, reach the next level, uh, which is why, again, why we got into this business 12 years ago was to help cinema chains, um, dine-in cinema specifically, operate as efficiently as possible. Um, and luckily, we've done well at that and grew our business because our customers expanded. And the show is doing the same thing. The Summit's doing the same thing. We're, we're picking up good momentum. We have great sponsors and we have lots of return exhibitors and now FECs joining in on it. And so hopefully we'll look back at this in a few more years and go, well, year six was good, but year 10 is going to be even better um, because we're all trying to do the right thing. And that is push everything forward in the right direction and help each other out. And it certainly looks that way as we see the explosion of dine-in cinema here in the United States. I think it's coming through summits like this one, through conversations like the ones you have at the dine-in cinema summit, where if, if you attend, you'll see the panels aren't regular conversations with three, four people. There's a lot of people in the audience with a lot of strong opinions. We are in Texas, and this is exhibition. They make their voices heard when they hear something yes, that doesn't do. add up. Mm -hmm. They do. And I will say, though, that's when, you know, when we started doing this, it, it all morphed out of, um, you know, we were in our booth at CinemaCon and the same people kept coming by. I, I say the same thing, asking, you know, very similar questions. And I was like, and I said to Matt, I'm like, do they all want to talk to each other? Well, because they're like all asking the same thing. And then I realized there's proprietary information, which everybody has their own, but whatever, it's all the same thing. And when we first started, it was, you know, we, we had the three words that we kind of stuck around. It was to gather, collaborate, and inspire. Right? And that, that was our goal. And this is not... You know, I always say it's what makes us unique is we're not a money. This isn't a money making thing. Every dollar that comes in from our sponsors and registration goes back into the summit. Um, we do that as a we do this as a service to the industry by putting it together, which that does take time. Um, but that's what it is. So it's, you know, no one's taking a big vacation here, you know, because of the summit. But, you know, for people like, you know, our presenting sponsored Spotlight Cinema Networks, you know, they've been fantastic the past couple of years. It's that the sponsors, I believe, believe in it. We believe in it. So we're ready to put the work into it. And then how it has evolved is people just saying, I want to be a part of it. And that's that's a great feeling. Because when we first started, we did it in 90 days. And we're like, we just want 30 people to show up. Maybe I can't. I can't imagine planning a wedding in ninety days, let alone a street convention in ninety days. That so must have been said, exciting. We said thirty people, and then all of a sudden, people started coming in, and I was like, "Well, we hit 30. and then it went on, and then the next goal was we just want everyone to talk, right? We're because we knew it was a space that we're put. We're providing an atmosphere. We just want people to be able to talk and not be cut off and say we cannot talk about that because we want we wanted to get into the nitty gritty and the conversations, and it worked. And, and then it's just expanded off of that. The other thing we have to, 
that we're very, Matt and I are very cognizant of is we don't want to repeat the same program from last year or the year before because those people already heard it. Mm-hmm. So they don't want to hear it again. Um, so that causes us to you know, have to use our creative minds a little bit more to, to say what haven't they heard or what is happening now in the world that they need to be thinking about. Well, I'm really looking forward to the event kicking off on February 5th here in Austin, Texas. That's the Dine-In Cinema Summit. For folks that want to find out more about the event, register, where should they go? They go to uh, www.dineincinemasummit.com. They can find us on Twitter, Facebook. Um, I know, not Instagram, because I'm not a big Instagrammer, but everywhere else. Twitter, Facebook, exactly. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Matt and Amy, for joining us here on the Box Office Podcast. Thank you so much for having us for having us. And that was Matt and Amy Matter from the Dine-In Cinema Summit. Thank you so much for joining us once again. And thank you, the listener, for joining us here on the Box Office Podcast. A big final thank you to our sponsor this week, Spotlight Cinema Networks. And we will be back next week with a surprise episode. We've been working on a story for a couple weeks now. It's, it's been on the shelf. We had to do a little research. There's an earnings call this week as you're listening to this that might dictate what next week's episode is about. That's the teaser I have. But join us next week. I guarantee you it'll be one of our more memorable episodes because the Box Office Podcast will be back, as always, every Thursday morning with more news, insights, and analysis on the world of theatrical exhibition. On behalf of Rebecca, Polly, and myself, thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you again next week.